Hey, welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. For today's episode, I get a chance to talk to Bud Smith. Bud Smith works heavy construction and lives in Jersey City, New Jersey. He is the author of Teenager from Vintage, Double Bird from Maudlin House, Dust Bunny City from Disordered Press, and several others. In this episode, we discuss Bud's taste in music and what led him to writing. We primarily focus on Teenager, though. Teenager is a book about two teenagers in love and insane journeying across the United States in a warped Bonnie and Clyde-like adventure. I hear a lot of background noise on your end. Are you by, like, a window? Yeah, uh, this is, like, the loudest apartment in, like, America. So this can... <laughs> It's going to be, like, traffic noise and stuff kind of in the background a little bit. It's ambience. It's fun. Yeah, totally. Okay, so do you want to give a quick introduction to who you are for those of us who are not smart enough to know who Bud Smith is? Yeah, sure. My name's Bud Smith. I'm a writer from Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, I just had a novel come out called Teenager on uh, Vintage. And I've been, uh, been writing for a while, and... My day job is working heavy construction for a labor union in New Jersey. So I, you know, do that. I drive around. I go to different plants and re-weld things and take stuff apart with cranes. And, uh, yeah, I usually write on my my phone when I'm there on my lunch breaks. And I like to come home and uh, <laughs> go to sleep for a while, wake up, and then uh, retype shit on my typewriter. I don't know. Oh, that's dude, do you have a typewriter? Yeah, that's kind of like... I like to work on that as much as I can. It's kind of like the same reason why I like to listen to my record player. It's like, it only does one thing, you know? And you gotta, like, keep getting up. And or with records, you know, you gotta keep getting up and tending to it, you know? Mm-hmm. You get, like, 20 minutes or something, and you gotta get out of the chair and flip it. And with the typewriter, it's like... I get to the end of the line and the thing goes ding <laughs> and I'm just tending it the whole time and I kind of feel like I'm participating with this machine that only does one thing well whereas like if I put on like I would say I have Spotify and Apple Music all that stuff but it's like when I put on music and it's just like you know in the background on shuffle like I have these infinite playlists I made a long time ago that I don't listen to anymore because it's just like I feel like I'm not paying attention to it it's just there and I like when I'm when I'm making art or hanging out with art to like only focus on it and it alone you know yeah you want to be engaged in it and not yeah. have it just be like the background music to your life yeah exactly yeah I want, I want to be one on one with it you know I was I was talking to uh, somebody about the other day, like, I don't listen to much rap, I don't listen to much hip-hop, and it's probably because when that's on, it is like, you have to be so engaged with it, you really can't do anything else, you know? It's like, I can't have a conversation with somebody else while, while there's already somebody, you know, rapping in the background, because I'll just, I will just listen to that, I'll just listen to Tribe Called Quest just rapping at me, and I'll, I'll like, lose track of... The conversation I'm trying to have, especially like I sit around with my wife a lot and listen to music, 
at night time and it's like I, I have to be like I'll, just, I'll re-listen to records over and over and over again the, one, the few that I really love whereas I know them so well I can almost kind of you know I have to get up and turn it over when the side ends but I can still concentrate on like having a conversation you know what I'm saying yeah what's your like go-to music uh my go-to music is probably like uh, Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street but I, I like where we Yankee Hotel Foxtrot will go I kind of like I like certain albums by certain bands but I don't necessarily like the whole everything you know much of what a band puts out I'm only like generally the bands I'm even the biggest fan of are only like one or two albums by them mm-hmm. such so as a point where like I won't even seek out the other stuff I'll just get obsessed with one album and listen to it over and over and over again. And I, and I don't even know what, uh, you know, what goes sixth and seventh and eighth or first and second and third albums hardly even sound like because I'm just so fixated on one particular. I'm almost like afraid to like check everything out by somebody. And I'm like that same way with, um, with, uh, with like, you know, authors, writers, and filmmakers too. I'll just get like obsessed with one film and, I, and I'll avoid watching the rest of them for, like, forever. It's one of those, like, don't meet meet your heroes kind of vibe, but just don't watch enough to the point you hate them. Yeah, it's just like I... And obviously, it's that's it's not that way for everybody. Like, Stanley Kubrick or something, I'll eventually I'll... You know, I had to watch all those or something. Ooh. They just became, like, such, like, a, you know, cultural touchstone. And I'm like, right, well, I'm not going to get away with avoiding Barry Lyndon. I have to eventually watch Barry Lyndon, you know, even even though, you know, the one I maybe was obsessed with is like Clockwork Orange, let's say, with mm-hmm. Shining or something. So it's like that with music too. I, at a certain point, I have to break down and, for instance, like with the Stones, I used to be obsessed with, um, trying to remember what album, oh, uh, it was the, let it bleed. For some reason, let it bleed was the, f- the first one I really got into by them. And I had let it bleed on record, and I had Hot Rocks. Hot Rocks is okay. It's like their you know the greatest hits kind of one. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the few albums where I would like put it on and actually write to it years ago. And I, I don't I don't have very many albums that I don't listen to music when I write. Yeah, I was gonna say most people do it where like they listen to music prior to writing to get into the zone, or they do like almost trap music or I, I hear a lot of people do k-pop while they write or just classical shit and they just want complete silence while writing yeah well there's no such thing as complete silence anyway True. so i mean i don't understand the having to have music on when, when you're when you're writing um it doesn't work it doesn't work for me at all because I, like i said i'm just focused on one thing like hype, I'm trying to be hyper focused. I don't have hyper focus, but I'm trying to not get distracted by other stuff. And there's enough like things happening all at once anyway. That uh, if I if I have to, especially I, you know, something good will be on, and and then it will it will end. And if I'm listening to Spotify or something, all of a sudden I will start making like an artist playlist radio, and it's just fucking terrible. It's just terrible. You know, I'm an album person. I want to listen to something somebody really thought about and this is the order the songs go in and then there's a there's a journey through it and I, I kind of hate um, I hate when the when the album ends and the, and the 
the algorithm starts playing me things they think I'll like based off of pet sounds or something. And that's always just such garbage. Mm-hmm. See, for me, I'll listen to the music to get hyped. I actually have a playlist that I made. It's called Every Writer's Origin Story because I'm dorky. But I was going to ask, what kind of music, like, I don't know, what would you describe would be, like, the teenager style of music? Because, I mean, I was thinking about it the other day. I was talking with my friends, and we were talking about, like, the greatest teenager movies. Like, we were talking about, like, Days and Confused, American Pie. I know these are really shitty films. <laughs> But, like, we were also watching the movie Senior Year on Netflix. And then it started getting me thinking, like, holy shit, what are the differences with music with teenagers? And I was wondering if you thought about that at all while writing this. Or if you're putting your own tastes into it while writing. Well, no, that, 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 that's exactly right. It's like, what, what are the tastes of teenagers and why, why they listen and what they're listening to? And that's, that has a lot to do with the music that's in this novel and there's not a whole lot of it and it's there there's not a whole lot of it for a very specific reason I guess I can kind of talk about that a little bit so in Teenager um Tella Carticelli she loves Elvis because her mom loves Elvis her mom was obsessed with Elvis always played Elvis and it was around the house and Tella had a really really rough childhood was abused and neglected um, physically abused by her father and the mother just kind of turned a blind eye to it so it's like Tella has she's like attached to Elvis because she thinks maybe there's a slim possibility he could be her real biological father because Tella has these has found these love letters that uh, the uh, the mother has from, from Elvis when uh, she was when she was a little younger and was kind of like chasing around specifically Elvis Presley like maybe that would be kind of thing but uh yeah so she she loves Elvis for that reason and listens to and almost exclusively listens to Elvis but um there's a scene in the car where they're driving into the Pine Barrens when she's thinking about how she wants to she wants to show Cody that she likes things. She likes other things. But she hasn't really reached the point in her development yet as a person where she really knows what those things are. And she wants to prove that she's not just like, you know, like like stuff because her parents liked it or whatever, and specifically Elvis. So she has this... I thought of, I thought of it as this way, because it's like, it's around the, it's the early 2000s when the, when the book takes place, right? So back then... You used to be able to go to flea markets and people, no one wanted records anymore. There was just like, everybody was un- unloaded. They had these things just sitting around. And I remember I used to be able to go to English Town Flea Market or like local garage sales in New Jersey, in New Jersey where I, where I grew up. Around this time, I was in my, around 2000, I was 18. So let me see, like 2002 probably is right around when this book's taking place. I was around 20. And I remember I would go to flea markets and I would just buy these huge, huge boxes of records for like five bucks, you know, and it would be like just filled with like random shit, you know. So I thought Tella probably had a, has a couple of these and she's kind of working through them. She's trying to figure out what she likes from records. And like, I'm not, it's probably is like a little weird little twee thing, you know, she has like, she has her little travel record player that she brings in the car with her. And um, I, I didn't see this family as having 
you know, DVD players and, and hardly even having like possibly no CD player in the house either. And it's just kind of like they have they have their weird little Elvis record collection, and that's probably it. And she has her little record player in her room where she listens to mom's rec- her mom's Elvis records, and now she has this box of random stuff that she's gotten at like flea markets and yard sales. And it's like I remember buying those kind of things when I was younger, and like you like cart it away and then like take it home and be like going through like 50, 50 records, and it's just it's just shit. You know, you'd flip through it, and there'd be, like, the staples, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, here's Bad Out of Hell. Oh, okay, five more. Here's Bad Out of Hell again. You know, <laughs> here's, you know, here's the, here's Saturday Night Fever. And they're just so, like, warped and destroyed and, like, sandy and, like, pitted. And then, you know, you flip a little bit more. Here's Jefferson Airplane, or here's, you know, here's Herb Albert. Uh, here's Gene Krupa. But in that, uh, in that car, she's she was listening to these, um, She's put on these Esther Williams soundtrack records that are these these soundtracks to these movies that were probably movies that her parents would have not even that her maybe if she had known her grandparents her grandparents would have liked these movies when they were younger they were like these aquatic uh, synchronized swimming pretty much movies that have like these grand soundtracks that are just like orchestra aquatic orchestras and stuff. And it's just this kind of stuff that that I, I thought Teal was the kind of person who's like trying to figure out what she likes and look and actively seeking and she's she's gonna become the most interesting person you've ever met. But she kinda has to figure it out herself. Just she doesn't really trust people and she's only really finally gotten to know Cody, who does not know anything about music, such to the point where I don't even think he, he listens to it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the other thing with him. I was I thought of him as like he was a guy who I had read Don Quixote maybe like three or four times, and he had uh, maybe find the, the books from school laying around. Like uh, he's big into reading uh, some of these Shakespeare plays, but he never mentions music once. He's not. He's not. It just isn't in his capacity. And I kind of thought, well, you know, the kind of person that doesn't appreciate music and doesn't doesn't even find the beauty so much in music would probably be the kind of person who could have the capacity to shoot someone's parent mm-hmm. and then the other parent, you know. It's like a person without, you know, the music sues the savage beast or whatever. So I thought, I thought of him as a person completely devoid of music. And her person on this like lonely quest through this endless box of records. But of course now that they're on the road and they got the radio, you know, you get if you're in the car for long enough and you're just flipping in between stations. I don't really talk about that in this novel, but I mean that that had that has to happen. You, you know, I, if you're in a car long enough, you're gonna you flip it through stations and and you're gonna find something that fits what's going on outside your window, no matter no matter where you flip. And uh, I think that's that's kind of the point of the book too. These these two people really find they're trying to find out what 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 excites them and and why they're blown away by being alive, despite the fact that they maybe feel like they have this looming death sense approaching them. And it's kind of like that's why I wrote this novel from the point of view of two teenagers who are just like wide eyed and fresh for things. 
but maybe don't quite know quite who they are just yet. Why did you write it um, from that time frame, like in 2002? Well, because that's when I was this age, pretty much. I was a little older. I was a little older than uh, than they were, but I thought that uh, I was I was kind of writing down a lot of my my uh, my the, my travels that I had into this book, places I went, places I saw. I went I went cross country I think three or four times, starting when I was I think nineteen was the first time I went completely out west from uh, from the east coast, just like getting in a car by like any means necessary and try to get from. New Jersey to San Diego to Los Angeles and just see everything along the way. And I had like, I had never really been interested in reading like a travel log. You know, somebody's, you know, I saw this, I did this, I, I saw this. I think even like the best writers who've ever lived, which um, still, if I just read their like travel logs, you know, they're, they're not, they're not very interesting to me. I'd rather read just their personal diaries about like things that they were getting into in, in their day-to-day life. But I feel like as soon as someone's on vacation and they become a tourist, let's say, just seeing and doing, uh, I, I feel like it's usually not explored in deep enough, enough depth for me. It doesn't have enough catharsis, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ah, I'm seeing this new thing, you know. So I didn't feel comfortable trying to write like my, <laughs> my fucking travel logs, you know. But I had these experiences, and eventually I just gave them to these characters who were actually going through something big, which, I, you know, my big thing was I was just excited to get out of my small town and start to see America and see the people who were my neighbors in other states who I knew nothing about, but I didn't have uh, a story worth relaying to people other than I was just excited to be in a car like a dog. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask, were you always from Jersey? Yeah. Born and raised uh, Jersey City? No, I was born and raised in a town called Bayville, New Jersey, which is like, uh, I don't know, you can't call it a suburb. It's like an adjoining town to uh, Seaside Heights, which is where they filmed that uh, MTV show, The Jersey Shore. So I'm, I'm right from there where they filmed that show, The Boardwalk and and uh, and yeah, so like in the um, in the summertime, that area kind of fills up with people from out of state who have like big houses. They come there seasonally, but in the the fall and winter, it kind of empties out. And um, I grew up just in like a I'd call it pretty much like a regular suburb, but just uh, you get fifteen minutes farther west, and it just starts to become straight. A, a rural area, rural not farmland, but like pinelands. Mm-hmm. So you get the, you get into the Pine Barrens, New Jersey, and you can like drive through that for for hours, and you you could be in any other rural part of America. Um, the geography is a little different, but the people are the same. I do like so, that you mentioned the geography of Jersey. Yeah, yeah, I, I always like. And it's the same for pretty much everybody who's from a certain state who's known for one type of geography or one type of uh, one type of economic system. Let's say, like, if someone's like, "Oh, I'm from California," immediately people think Southern California or they think of like Hollywood. 
But California is so vastly different. And California is another place just full of rural farmland. And it's full of like, I was talking to my friend from uh, North Carolina the other day. She moved up to Maryland. And she said that she was so surprised that they have, she said that they have hicks up there. I said, I said, well, they have hicks everywhere. Yes. I mean, every state, has, and I don't mean hicks in a derogatory sense. I'm saying rural people. Yeah. And she and she thought it was like, because she grew up in a really rural part of North Carolina that it was exclusive to where she's from. But I'm, I told her a few times, I said, you know, if I take you to parts of New Jersey, you would never believe that. You know, it's what you know as New Jersey. We just think of it as like, Everybody flies into Newark Airport, and they see this industrial area, and that's just one little, one little, tiny version of it. It's got all different kinds of geographies, but that's most states. You know, we think of, we think of Florida as, as one way. It's it's many different things. We think of Texas as one thing. It's many different things. Well, if you get around America, you see that every state has its surprises. And that's one of the best things about getting getting in a car and actually ripping around and seeing the country where you live in. It's very easy to just say, oh, my God, the people from this part of the country are ignorant or all oh, the people from this are uppity or whatever it is. But when you actually get out into the towns that are like a little bit broken away from the from the actual big star on the map for that place, you realize it's pretty much the same no matter where you go. And Americans are very similar. Mm-hmm. And and pretty pretty damn cool. So, what do you think about New Jersey having that identity as like the very like industrial state and also kind of being like the little brother to New York? Well, I think it's true. I think that's um, that's what it is. It's definitely um, definitely the little brother to New York in a way. And um, the people who settled New York were the people who were settling New Jersey. So it's got. It's got a lot of the same, same settlers and, and the same history. It's pretty. It's tied pretty close together, and the the immigrants that came into New York are the ones who really shaped what New Jersey became. Especially um, where I live now, which is Jersey City, which you mentioned before. And you're asking about like what what it was like maybe growing up, growing up here, growing up in the state, and now it's like living living right. Across the river from from uh, from New York City, it's like at any time I can just get on the train and and, and be in, in the city in like twenty minutes or so. But it's like um, you know, it's possible to have a car here in Jersey City. It'll just keep getting you know more more impossible to park a car, <laughs> park a car in New York City for the for the better. I was just watching a thing today about a mayor in Spain who was talking shit to people who lived in this in the city system. My, my responsibility to figure out where you can park your car, it'd be like me worrying about where you're going to put your refrigerator or where you're going to put your, I forget what the other thing was he said. But his his thing was, and I think it's pretty cool, about turning his city just into pretty much pedestrian green zone, bike lane, and getting rid of the cars. And uh, I would love to not have to have a car. Right now, I have to because I'm commuting for construction. But I'm, I'm driving all the time, you know, through New Jersey, commuting to my construction jobs. And uh, like I said, you know, you see you see all different kinds of you know aspects of the state. Uh, 
most of my jobs used to seem to be in um, the very southern tip of the state where I drive down there was a nuclear power plant I used to work down in in Salem, in Salem New Jersey and you'd go down there and it'd be like the densest you know like I said you drive through the pine barrens and then you'd wind up in these just like open expanses of farmland which is not something you think about usually when you think about the state it's called the garden state which shocks people they think it's you know <laughs> I think it's like an ironic that's so funny you know the garden state but and then you like, look at like the pictures and everything of it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I think the go-to picture is probably just uh, the go-to picture of New Jersey is probably just a shot of the New York skyline from New Jersey. But, just in the shadow of the sea. Yeah, but I, but I think it's just people think about um, they they their plane lands in Newark, New Jersey, which has its mm-hmm. has its crazy beauty if you actually just get on the ground and meet the people and see the culture that 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 the people have brought to Newark, New Jersey, but like, listen, I'm going to tell you something, it's probably one of the hardest places to ever drive a car, not because you can't, uh, you can maybe park in Newark just like you can park in Jersey City, but it's rough here, it's like, the, I'm not talking about crime, I'm talking about driving, it's like the uh, the Olympic Games of, of driving, I had a friend come down and visit me from uh, upstate New York, he came down from up by Ithaca. And he got out of his car, like, shaking, you know. Look, it's like Thunder Road. How do you do it, you know? And Hey, isn't that a Bruce Springsteen song? Yeah, it's a Bruce Springsteen song, yeah, Thunder Road. But, he, you know, he's referring to, like, the movie Thunder Road from the yeah. 50s, which is just, like, the dra- it's a movie about drag racing, which I think Springsteen based the uh, song off of. Mm-hmm. I might, be ha- I might have that backwards. Who knows? <laughs> We'll have to do some research on that later. But no, I'd say the craziest place to drive is actually Georgia. Have you ever driven there? Yeah, yeah, I've driven through Georgia. We yeah, talking about like down by Atlanta and stuff. Yeah. Oh, you're talking. Yeah, so you're talking about like when the road gets gets wide. Yeah, it's it like gets that. chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. I but. would say in Chicago we have one of the simplest ways to drive we're a grid system and we only have like two highways and they're pretty damn easy they don't merge too much so have you been to chicago yeah yeah i've been to chicago when is the last time you did like a road trip um it's been a while i kind of like i'm trying to think i remember when we were like planning double bird you said that you were going to go on a road trip I mean, I go all the time for like, you know, like a 10 hour drive or something, which is like not the same as, you know, being in the car for like three weeks, no. three weeks or a month or something. But like, I think you said you were playing like a cross country thing. Yeah, I think, I think in, when we were doing Double Bird, I drove down, I think that's when I first met Ashley Bryant Phillips and I went down, I had somebody had contacted me about doing like a reading series that was like the traveling Appalachian review, which was it met up in Pittsburgh, and Ashley took a bus up from North Carolina, and we drove from Pittsburgh down into West Virginia, and then down to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, yeah, so it doesn't seem that crazy, but you know, it's like one of those maybe 
20 hours of driving uh, just a couple days I just drove down to Virginia to go to Virginia Tech which is pretty was, was alright you know it's another like how far of a drive is that for you it's not too bad it was like 8 hours down there and 8 hours back but uh, we listened to we listened to me and Ray Ray was in the car with me Ray Belair she uh my wife and the yeah, other say let's specify yeah and the she did all the illustrations in uh, Teenager of anybody. Did she do the cover too? No, um, they had they had this guy named Tyler Comrie do the cover, who's like brilliant. That guy's crazy. He's got like oh, I um, see it back here now. Yeah. Yeah, she had um, I think the so this well, I'm getting off topic, but the, she That's has the whole point of this podcast. She, yeah, she has like I counted them the other day. I think there's 69 drawings in the in the book. And um, the editor of the book, he was, like, you know, pushing for, like... He was the one who wanted the drawings to begin with. And uh, somehow, really somehow, Ray Ray wound up, like, getting the job offer kind of to do that. My uh, my agent had sent um, the editor, who I didn't know yet, really. You know, he was just a guy who was interested in buying the book. A copy of Dust Bunny City, which we had done. Um, because he was, like, talking about line drawings. And I was, like, I kind of had my head in my hands. I was, like, oh, no, man, it was, who's going to be the person to ruin ruin my novel, you know? Because uh, as soon as they start talking about putting doodles in there or something, it's just like, I don't know. I think it's a good idea to do something, to just, like, do something cool, but you have to, obviously, you have to find the right person. And I, I was, like, just dreading who they were going to, like, you know, team me up with. And then all of a sudden, my agent had sent um, Dust Bunny City to the editor, and he was like, holy shit, this person has to do the drawings. These are perfect. And I don't really think he was even totally understood yet that we were, like, married, that we were husband and wife. So I heard from Ray. She was like, I got an email from Mike Mangiello about, like, the illustrations in your novel. I was like, holy shit. Oh, my God. Because I was like, honestly, I'm the least, I'm just bad with nepotism, you know. I would, yeah. ne- I would never do the Billy Joel thing um, that he did with Christy Brinkley. She painted the cover of River of Dreams. It's, like, the worst painting I've ever fucking seen in my life. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just picture, you know, Chrissy Brinkley, Billy, Billy, look at my, you know. So anyway, uh, yeah, we worked on that. But she was in the car, and I think her drawings, like, make the book. You know, I think they're sick. But um, I love them, too. How did you guys decide where illustrations would be? Well, like I said, it was kind of... Uh, like, was that all on her? Kind of, a little bit. So I'll tell you the quick version of this story. So what happened was, so the editor who wanted to acquire the book, and now it seemed like he actually was acquiring the book because I had agreed to, like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely down to edit it. That's, like, the first thing they ask you. They're like, are you okay with edits, you know? And that's all I've been trying to do is, like, get thoroughly edited, like, my whole... That's my point of trying to, you know, do this, you know, to learn how to, like, become a better writer. Honestly, it's just, like, my quest to, like, find somebody who's just going to, like, put the stories, like, through the ringer and like let's rip it apart and see what we can do with it and honestly not a whole lot of that happened really emotional we kind of messed with the emotional stuff a lot but the plot was the plot but anyway so now I had this person who was going to edit it and I was like oh shit this is amazing but I had to you know and now we had the the idea for these drawings so he, he came back after a day or two where okay Ray's going to do it this is going to be it he came back with a list of like all the ideas of each chapter, he had kind of picked out a 
like an icon or a symbol or something that he like proposed for like almost each chapter. So there was probably maybe like a couple more drawings proposed than what's in the book. And so Ray just sat down with that list and drew all those things. She, she had like a stack of like a hundred and I'm going to say maybe 120 drawings and you know um, then we went through them all and like some of the things that like Todd was like you know draw you know draw Graceland or something and she would just like wasn't feeling it you know so she would like mm -hmm. she would like sketch it and draw it and then like you know we would look at it together and I'd be like oh man it's too tight you know you gotta loosen up because like she her, her her style is just like melted and demented and like you know, get loose and like, like let it rip, you know, mm -hmm. she's kind of not, not the same person that's going to sit there and try to be like photorealistic or something, or like even, you know, she's drawing reality from like a skewed and bent place, you know, so she's drawing Graceland and it just looks like Graceland, so eventually she'd be like, oh, read me that chapter again, so I read it, and then she's like, all right, I'm going to draw the monkey, I'm going to draw, you know, Elvis's monkey or whatever. All right, no, that's not what I'm gonna draw the bananas. So that's just kind of how it, how it went. She would like, she would go with this initial idea maybe that was proposed, and it wouldn't work for her. So she would invent better and better and better things, more personal things for her. So there's there's a lot of drawings in there which I'm like, there's no way they're gonna put this fucking thing in there, Be because like I thought um, it was maybe like too raw or strange or like whatever. Like some of my, and my favorite drawings are, are that way in the book. Where, mm -hmm. and, and then as soon as we like sent the pack the packet in of the first proposed drawings it's amazing because all we heard was like fuck yes this is this is sick can can we do something crazy for the rest of it almost but there was just like complete creative freedom and how she how they all got laid out was the same way she like we kind of made a PDF of the thing and or not kind of we made a PDF of the thing in uh in uh, pages from for Mac with um, with her drawings like placed in the text and then because that was the other thing I was worried that there was just going to be like just really I don't want you know stories where they'd have the big drop down ladder like once upon a time the O was really big and illustrated well like mm. so a lot of these drawings are like the drop the drop cap letter and, but instead of the drop cap letter it would be like a, a weird little mutated horse uh for, for the indentation on the on how the, the paragraph starts. Yeah, I really like um, the one she did for chapter twenty four. Definitely feels very Illuminati. Oh, is that the one with the I love Satan? Uh, no, it's just the eye and the pyramid that's like melting. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I actually asked people to vote and tell me what their favorite one was. A lot of people say that they want that to be a tattoo. Oh, cool! Yeah, I've been Feel hearing free to pass that one on. Yeah, I've been hearing that, um, and a lot of the, the reviews that are happening, which is great because there's, you know, I don't read, I'm not reading these reviews that uh, they keep getting sent to me. I don't, I don't really read them. I kind of just retweet them and, or whatever. I don't look at that stuff, but uh, I do, I do get like kind of encapsulated reviews from the editor. And like he's like, oh man, this one mentions Ray, and I'm like, all right, cool. So I'll, I'll read, I'll read that, and kind of read the review of her drawings usually. And it's just like everybody's, they're always like, oh, I want a tattoo of every everything in the book. I want to, or like, a, it's a perfect <laughs> tattoo. So I always make sure I send those ones to her because, uh, you know, 
I don't mean ever get numb by, uh, you know, book reviews or any of that stuff. It's just none of my business, you know. But she's like, this is all, you know, it is, <laughs> I guess it is her business, you know, right now. She's like, oh, what do people think of my drawings, you know. But I'm just like, I don't really want to know what people think of the, my writing. I just want to, I want to know that, uh, you know, maybe people are thinking the book is good and bad at the same time, you know. I don't, I don't, it doesn't help me read a glowing review or anything. I mean, you've been writing for a while now, so you would definitely have more of a blasé. And not blasé, I feel like that sounds a little douchey, but more of a not letting it bother you vibe when it comes to reviews. Yeah, I mean, because it's really... Even, like, I won't listen to this. I'm not going to listen to this podcast when it goes <laughs> up. So, you know, because I, I don't want to listen to myself. And, and no, I, I do the same I, thing. I don't want to get self-conscious about, um, you know, what I say out loud and anyway so what I was what I was saying though my point we were driving down to Virginia Tech raising the car with me and we had I, I told her I said let's pick out 30 albums you know let's pick out 30 of the best albums that you know we want to listen to all the time the ones we always a lot of times we'll sit in our living room and after when the night's kind of ending and I kind of like end my my creative day which kind of happens after my construction day by sitting or sitting in a blue chair in front of our record player with Ray and we just drink beer and talk and laugh. So it was kind of like getting in that car and knowing that, that you're going to have 30 albums at about 45 minutes a piece and that's going to be the drive time, you know? So that was pretty, pretty cool. Like having that list and she came up with a whole bunch of them and I came up with a whole bunch of them. And I think we only had like one or two really dud albums um, which was all because we were listening to Born in the USA, which is I love. Um, not sh- you know, when I was younger, I wasn't so much a Bruce Springsteen fan. And it wasn't until I was like 25 or so I really got in it, started to understand like why he was uh, actually an important artist. You know, because I grew up right there, and it's kind of like you don't, you know, you can't you kinda, really avoid him in New Jersey, no. Well, it's like not only can you not avoid it, but you can't. I didn't really ever grow up around people who were uh, into the arts e- either, you know. So it's just kind of like it was just pop music, you know. Especially the stuff that people were like really into, or like you'd always hear the song "Glory Days" playing everywhere. And "Glory Days" is just a song about you know it was so much better when I was younger. So it's just this, like, really reduced, I feel bad for myself kind of song, which maybe when he, when, he, when he performs it, I guess it's like, it has its balanced place on that album or whatever. But I feel like people just, people like it because they're like, oh, yeah, do you remember how great it was to be young? You know, here I am, I'm 30. I remember how great it was to be 18 or something. Where it's just like, I always felt like people who were, like, giving up too soon on their, uh, on their, their vitality, let's say, where I was from. Um, and it probably comes from the place being a seasonal town and people are, like, not there in the... not there in the fall, not there in the... definitely not there in the winter, hardly there in the early spring. So you're kind of in this place where all, a lot of the restaurants aren't even open. Um, the the quote-unquote, like, nice things to go and do, they're not... they're seasonal, so they don't open back up till the summertime. So you're just kind of, like, in this, like lonely lonely place kind of waiting for it to come back alive when it becomes a tourist 
attraction, you know. So, so he had that. He had that song, and and he also had like "Hungry Heart," which was always playing, which was like, um, it's, you know, got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. He went for a ride and never came back. About this dude who just like abandons his <laughs> wife and kids, you know. Yeah. And so that was always that would always be playing, and then of course like the hits from um, "Born in the USA." So. Born in the USA, the song itself is like really misunderstood, um, famously misunderstood, and then you know, dancing in the dark, be playing or something, and so there's all these things that are just like the nuance of it. I feel like you just you know, not really consider it's, it's pop music, you know, until you really look at it closer. And so anyway, yeah, so we're listening to side B of Born in the USA in the car, and. It, that's my one of my favorite side B's of any any record, and I think it's really I think it's really overlooked, and I think it's really underrated. Born in the USA is not like an album that's honest. It's not taken seriously enough as like a great album. Some of the other Springsteen albums, honestly, are overrated. Like Born to Run is an overrated album. The River is an overrated album. He doesn't really have like a great. He doesn't really even have a great album, honestly. He has a really great side, uh, side B of Born in the USA. It's, it's just incredible to me, anyway. And this is all just me talking shit. So anyway, side B of Born in the USA ends, and um, and I know some people are going to say, "Well, what about Nebraska?" <laughs> uh, yeah, Nebraska's all right. I mean, uh, it's better than most people will ever do, but it's his demos. You know, he, he could he couldn't get it past he couldn't get it past the. Um, you could get in the studio and get the band to do the songs justice. You know, they 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 couldn't they couldn't get it. And I don't know if that's the band's fault or the time, whatever it was. But they had they had to go back to the original home demos he had. And that's what got released. And I know a lot of people. That's like the myth of it. You know, oh, it was so great what he did in his bedroom. But I mean, I don't know. I just always wonder about that. Like, what it really could have been. And I think we might. I think we might wind up seeing that soon because there's these um, you know archive albums that we see more and more of them and, and I keep waiting to see if, if they're ever going to put out and I'll probably prove I'll be proved completely wrong because they abandoned it they didn't finish it either you know the uh, the electric versions of Nebraska um, but anyway so so here we go so I'd be born in the USA ends and I'm uh, like I said it's just my favorite shit the only other side B that I think is holds a candle to it is probably uh and superior to it is side so be Abbey Road, which is like just incredible. But anyway, so I, I'm like, oh man, let's put on let's put on another album. And this is like album twenty seven out of thirty and I'm like going off off the list here, like straying. I'm like, fuck it, let's put on uh, Tunnel of Love, you know, his his one his follow up to Born in the USA is like four four years later. And uh, I don't know if the problem's me, or I'm just not, I'm not, I didn't rise up to the, the challenge yet of liking that album, but, oh uh, man, that was the one, the one real big dud of the, uh, of the 30 album run we had on our road trip was Tunnel of Love. It's got like, it has like maybe four really incredible songs, but uh, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't really like hold together enough where like, I would like jump out of my chair and put the needle back to the beginning, listen to it again, and, like, not want to get up. That's what, probably the thing that really, that the common denominator in, like, a really amazing album to me is, like, I don't flip it. 
I've been on side A and maybe sometimes side A is better than side B but most of the time honestly I think side B's are better it's just kind of like it's where the weirder shit is you know mm-hmm. and I'll just jump up out of my chair and I'll put the needle back and I'll listen, we'll listen to side B again again it's like 20 minutes of side B hop back up go get another beer put the, put the needle back down and uh, yeah I don't know that makes me happy Definitely a great aesthetic and everything. Great vibe. So you said that you didn't grow up with, like, a lot of artistic people. How did you get into this? Well, it's just getting to the city. I mean, yeah, that's, like, that's why you move up here. And I think that's why most people move to a city. They just kind of feel like they don't have... uh, There are artistic people anywhere you go. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's artistic people in the most rural places. Um, but the problem is, I feel like a lot of people feel really repressed with it. They don't they don't feel like they can completely show that side of themselves in, not only in like, I'm not talking about in public, I'm saying even in private among other people, it's kind of like this little, you know, this side of yourself that's more of like a private thing, let's say, like, you know, you write stories or whatever and it's like you almost don't want to mention it out loud to other people because you don't want to like look like a total um, crazy person let's say mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of that like no one wants to ever be seen as pretentious nobody wants to like look like they are uppity and bougie or whatever they're just kind of like you know having fun having a great time the coolest people I've ever met are from the place where I'm from the amazing people but there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to just like talk about books talk about movies um there's no there's no place to go see interesting movies really there was just the and i lived in a pretty populated area i'm certainly not complaining people have really had a bad who in america live out in like really a a desolate area at least we had like video stores and stuff and you could probably find 75% 75% of anything you ever wanted to track down, even if you were, like, a, a person on a quest to really broaden your horizons of, like, what great films are, quote-unquote great films. And we had an amazing public library, so you can find this stuff. But the problem then would be, um, I couldn't find people to talk to that shit about. So, I mean, the easy, the easy enough solution was just get on the bus and go to the city. And from a young age, you know... Once you can kind of like go and do things on your own, probably like 15, 16, you know, you can go up to the city and and certainly you wouldn't meet the people right away who would be the ones who you can like talk about this stuff, but at least you're like there among it, you know, and the energy's different and everybody's, nobody cared if they look like the biggest freak in the world and it just, it just made, it took the pressure of everything off where you're just like, cool, that's, that's a, f- a freer way to live and I don't have to have the, uh, my haircut this certain way and I don't have to live in this town and worry about my mo- my lawn not being mowed and and it just seemed it seemed exciting to just to learn from people and that was that. so that kind of sent me by hook or by crook to living in the city even though uh, the story of how I actually wound up living in there was as all repressed scared you know men I had, <laughs> had to be dragged up there by a woman you know Ray was uh, one night. She was taking the 
commuting on the bus back and forth. And she was, she came home and she said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and look at apartments in the city. Do you want to come and look with, at them with me? And maybe we could live up there. And I had just started working construction in New Jersey out of the Union Hall. And it sounded like the most insane thing I ever do to move to New York City. I'm working in New Jersey. And what, what am I going to do with my car and all this stuff? And, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the next thing I know, we got really drunk. And the next morning when I woke up, extremely hungover, she had uh, the list of places that we had we had, found, we had found on Craigslist to go look at. And so we drove up to uh, 173rd Street in the first apartment we looked at. We wound up living there for 10 years. And uh, it was amazing. And, you know, so she kind of helped me live a dream of mine I didn't think that I could really do. And, and one way or another, she wound up um, becoming an illustrator, which is something she went started going to college for and then and it felt like she couldn't do it. Um, couldn't hang with the illustrators. They were a whole, whatever they had going on in the, illust the illustration program at this college she went to, RISD. She just didn't feel like she fit in, so she changed her major to uh, textiles. But then, years later, being married to the guy who works at the, the garbage burn power plant, she became a, a professional illustrator from working with me. So we, we helped. Each, we many, many dreams we both had. We've helped each other figure them out in this strange ways that uh, you didn't see coming. Curveball ways. I mean, it's the best kind of partnership there is. Yeah. It always feels fun and, like, surprising. How did you know? Okay, so, like, I feel like it's very different from, say, my generation to yours. I'd like to call you an elder millennial, but I'm not really quite sure. No, I think I am. I'm, I'm 40. Yeah, so, so. I, I think that's right. I'm like I'm on the edge of what was boom not boomer generation X. So I was born in 1981. So I think the cutoff for Gen X is like 79 or, or 80, depending on who you like. That's what I've seen anyway. So the internet didn't play such a big role in your adolescence and then growing up into being a writer. How did you find the community to be a writer in? So I'm trying to think. So the so the computer, because like most of us like got it from like Facebook and everything. Yeah. So in 1996, we had a we had a computer in our house, um, and it couldn't do anything. You know, you could like, you can make greeting cards with it. That's what that's what we had it for. My mom my mom would make greeting cards. I remember for like friends and family. That was that was what the computer did. And I had in my room, I had bought a. Um, Right around that same time, I bought this word processor that had like a little floppy disk, and all you could do was you could you know you could write a whole novel on the thing, which I did do, and on the on the floppy disk, and you could print it out on your printer. And that's all that's all it was. You couldn't email it. You couldn't do anything. And so I didn't even have the computer yet, where I was like using Microsoft Word or any of that stuff. Probably until after I graduated high school. I didn't have a cell phone either until 2000, 2001 maybe. So like the, the, the characters in Teenager not having cell phones really, they have burner phones later on in the book. Um, I 
was kind of like getting questioned on a little bit by like fact checkers or whatever. Like, where are the cell phones and stuff? And I'm like, well, I remember being this age and not having a fucking cell phone. I remember I had to get one because I was uh, like my girlfriend at the time was like threatening me that she was going to, we weren't going to, we weren't going to see each other anymore because she was tired of calling the, the house and having to talk to everybody else and say, you know, and then you keep, you know, but, and you know, you'd, I'd pick up the phone or whatever. She wanted just to be able to talk to me and get a hold of me. So I had to finally break down and go to the county mall and buy a, and buy a, a flip phone, you know, in like 2000 and I say like the summer of 2001, I think it was when I first had a cell phone. So, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't have the internet really until MySpace was like the first thing, social media thing that I used was MySpace. And that was 2003, I think. Mm-hmm. And, but honestly, that was when, that was when I first saw that it was possible to do whatever, whatever you wanted in the community of writers it was like immediate and it was a huge fad at that point no one no one so Facebook didn't obviously didn't really exist yet it was it was still in its infancy and no one I knew had it or used it people who were on the internet on social media the, the early stages of social media were using MySpace for blogs everybody had a fucking blog and it would and this is what Maybe this is where my, like, disdain for, like, a travel log kind of comes from. Because it would be these kind of things like that. It would be, like, amateur writing about, you know, kind of, like, observations and things people saw. But it would just kind of be, like, um, yeah, it wasn't formed yet. It was just, so it was just, the writing was sophomoric, and it didn't matter. It was just people, it was a blog. People didn't take it seriously. And that was cool. That was the best part about it, though even though like most of the writing and I didn't even know what literary fiction was yet or any of that stuff so I didn't have like a high metric for like oh this isn't good enough on like a artistic level I'm just saying it was a blog and it was like you could put any junk you wanted up on there and it was fine but um right around that time I started using it for um for short stories I would write short stories and put them up on there and I met uh, a lot of a lot of people who became great friends to me through the, in real life, you know, through, through that. And, um, yeah, that was like, that was the initial thing that probably turned me into actually pursuing writing, um, more than playing music, which is what I was doing a lot of the time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was in bands and wrote, wrote the, I I never sang in a band. I would always, and I never wrote the lyrics. I would always write all, all the music. And the singer would come up with the, uh, with the lyrics and he'd sing the songs. What did you but, play? Uh, I played guitar then, um, in like a kind of like a, so this was two thousands like math rocky kind of band that was kind of like maybe like Tool or Incubus or something with like um, yeah so. Is there a cool then, band name that we should all know? No, we never really had a we never really had a good band name. It was like it was like one of those things where. We would play every Tuesday and Thursday night for like years, you know, and like get all these songs together. And it was just to the, to the point of, you know, what you needed to do was like buy a van and just start aimlessly driving around. But the other guys in the band, you know, they were starting to have um, their first kids. 
you know, young, very young. So you can't do that, you know. No one had. Um, we just it wasn't that kind of like for some you know for some reason we we're all like a little skittish about that. So it couldn't happen, you know. You couldn't you couldn't take that next dive, which is a good thing I think because you know. Um, then you yeah, end up as a writer. Well, it wasn't like my path, and yeah. a lot of, a lot of times with with creative people. They, they had, and like, it's like what we talked about with Teal earlier, you know, she's trying to find like her music, she's trying to find her path, and that's a lot of creative people I know, they, they get really tortured by not being good at the first thing they try, you know, someone's like, I want to be the best lead guitar player ever, and gee, that's just not your path, you know, maybe, maybe if you really work at it, yeah, but it shouldn't feel like complete, uh, it shouldn't feel like you have to work at it that hard forever. Mm-hmm. It should be, you know, you apply yourself to it, and if you're on the right path, you're going to start to see some interesting things happen, especially if you um, go against what everybody else is kind of doing and, and just do your own personal thing. Maybe maybe sometimes you're on the wrong path, and it feels like complete torture for a long time, and you're just, like, on slightly the wrong path with what you're doing. Like, you're, you are a writer, but you're just working in the, the wrong mode, you know? Like, I remember... I remember, I remember when I was like starting out, and I thought writing had to be a certain way, you know, because you like you like learn in school, you know, you, you you read certain books, and everybody like loves certain things because it's so like serious or whatever, it's like so heavy and like big. But like the things that I was really drawn to weren't weren't those kind of books, you know. They were the ones that were kind of like a little more like you could see the. the you could see the sloppiness to it, and the and the errors, and the and the you know, and that was like a, a plus to the actual style. You know, I didn't know what the, what, what the style was yet. And so anyway, my whole point is like, so here I am messing around on blogs, and, and you kind of find that kind of writing too. You find that on there. You find the maybe like somebody like Hunter S. Thompson or something. They like Jack Kerouac, and it just feels like they are like just doing something sloppy and personal and it means more to me as like a young man where I'm like oh shit yeah you can do that it doesn't have to be so like perfect you know and a lot of my favorite albums are like that too you know it's like you know the band the singer's not in key you know the the guitar player's way off the beat you know like uh, I'm thinking about like bands like Neutral Milk Hotel, they're they're perfect. You can't change to me, you know. You can't change anything about those those two albums. But the first time you put on Airplane Flies Over the Sea, okay, the first song sounds good, and then I love you, Jesus Christ. It sounds like what the fuck is going on? But then, but then you listen to it a few more times, and you realize there's no other way to do it. To get that same that same emotion and that same feel, you have to go into the realm of you know where you don't know whether to shut this off or turn it up. A lot of my favorite writers do the same thing with like abstraction. Tim O'Brien, I think about all the time. He's like trying to write about a certain feeling, but he can't give it to you in. The story is based in reality, but he has to have this transcendent moment. 
that kind of breaks away and flies over it and does something really odd with the material without leaving straight reality, but to convey that emotion. Um, and yeah, it's the, the best kind of art is to me is the stuff that does that, where it's like borderline, what is this? Should should they be allowed to do this, you know? It's definitely That's very sloppy and visceral and, yeah. Visceral, yeah. So, one question after speaking to Tobias Carroll. I think you already said you were going to cover it. What's the deal with Central Jersey? Um, people, like, get really, um, they get really, even people in New Jersey get really weird about it. And it's just a silly thing because it's like, um, Every state has north, east, west, central. Everyone. It's, people are like, no, there's only north and south Jersey. I'm like, if I have a piece of paper, I can fold it in three, four, you know? I can fold it in half. I'm telling you, a thinking person can tell you there's a central anything. There's a central of my apartment. So all the time I hear people who are at my job, who um, were like, they'll argue about this. The like, guys who are from it's from a legit Sur- thing. Yeah, but it's just like it's just a different way of seeing divisions of whatever. But um, an intelligent person will tell you there's a central to everything. There's mm-hmm. a south to everything. There's a north to everything. There's an east to everything. A west to everything. It's all in your perception. And if you're gonna tell me there's no such thing as a central Texas. Okay, well, I can show you Texas, and I can, I can figure out where the middle of Texas is, and I can draw a circle there, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my stance on it. I don't understand. I don't understand the argument about it. Yeah, that's what confused me. I don't think I've ever heard of a state being like there is not a central of it. Like, what? Where did that come from? That's just stupid shit, man. People, are, people are so dumb. They um, basically. I think it's, in my union, you know, there's the South Jersey guys and there's the North Jersey guys, you know, they call, they call the guys from North Jersey, um, our union hall used to be in Bayonne, so it'd be the Bayonne beauties, or, you know, <laughs> or they'd call the guys from, then the guys from South Jersey are called tomato pickers, so there's just the South Jersey guys and the North Jersey guys, so they'll argue about the guys where I'm from um, are in the middle of the state, the literal middle of the state, you know. And they'll all say, you know, oh, we're from central Jersey. Uh, they're from the shore, most of them. And it's like they don't want to be associated with the guys from south Jersey for whatever reason. And they don't want to be associated with the guys from north Jersey for whatever reason. It's like they want to have their own identity. So maybe it's just like, maybe it's that middle child thing. And this is just the opinion of somebody who's from that centrally located area. But I'm like I was telling you earlier, I'm from I'm from the Jersey Shore and I moved up to New York City for ten years. When I lived down in the Jersey Shore, we would call the people who who came down on the vacation people, the um, called Bennies. They come down there just for the season. And they clog up the parkway and the turnpike and everybody talks shit about them. You know, and they're... Whatever. You don't want to be a Benny. 
from, if you're from down there, it's, it's like just stupid to even think this way. But then, like, when I moved up to New York City, and now I go back down and visit my family in the summertime, my friends start to be, oh, wow, you're Benny now. I'm like, yeah, that's, come visit me in the city one time, you know? <laughs> like, they're, ter- they're terrified. They're terrified of driving up there. And uh, I think people just have their, they're set in their ways and in their small community, whatever it is, and they don't have the means most of the times to get out of, of where they're from. And so they set up these arbitrary rules and they draw these weird little lines in the sand. So you get the Central Jersey thing, you know, the North Jersey thing, South Jersey thing. We do it in America too. The North hates the South. See, that so, one's ridiculous these days. Yeah, of course it is. But it's just every everybody everybody's from their their hometown. You know, mm-hmm. whatever whatever it is. And it doesn't matter if you live in Los Angeles or if you live in Atlanta, or if you live in Indianapolis, you know, it doesn't matter where you live, you're, you're from your community, and it's kind of you versus the world. I dig it. I, I actually really get that entire vibe, that's almost a summation of the book, you versus the world, them versus the world. Yeah, well... Mainly Cody, but yeah. Yeah, mainly Cody, I think... I think Teal is pretty much just as pissed off too. She just expresses it in a different way. Um, uh, you know, it's like he shoots her parents in the opening of the book, and it's like it's like you wake up from a dream of yourself doing something you shouldn't have done. You know, and right away I shouldn't. Have, you know, he he says it over and over in the beginning. Like I really shouldn't have done that. It's like fuck, man. You, if you just thought thought things through a little bit more. But it's like that's what makes him a teenager, though. Yeah, kind of. I think I think we don't give enough credit to young people. They're they they're really they're inexperienced a lot of times, but they're just as smart as they're ever going to be most of the time. Mm-hmm. Their IQ is their IQ, and, and and I think we we give young kids, you know, which we treat them like babies for far too long. Um, this particular book is maybe is about a, a naive person. So I'm probably, I'm probably, you know, perpetuating that uh, that feeling of like, oh, the little baby's too naive yet. Wait till they grow up, you know. But I feel like um, I feel like in this in this book in particular, it's like you can see your future coming. You really can. Like this this kid knows. He kind of knows he's already down the path of being just completely fucked. He's completely fucked. His pregnant girlfriend is being sent on an airplane to Rome. He's got a letter, letter from the father saying, don't come here, I'll shoot you. He has to go there. He tries to do he tries to do the right thing, and it's still the fucked up thing, which is breaks into the house and tries to get the gun out of the father's. He takes the gun out of the father's gun safe. Just because then he knows he can go and talk to the man and not get shot. But now he's got the gun in his, in his possession. And in the heat of the moment, shoots the father. The mother is screaming and so worked up, he shoots the mother. And then later on, Matil says, I can understand why you know you had shot my father, but why did you have to shoot my mother? He says to her, well, it's because she loved your father as much as I love you. And what uh, Matil said, you know, Teal doesn't really respond 
But it's like, she thinks about that and finds the answer in any one of a thousand different ways, which is, I thought of that when I was trying to write down what she would say. And I couldn't figure out what a person could say to that. Things running through someone's head. And you got what you wanted, but you, it, you didn't get it how you really wanted it to happen. And you know that mm-hmm. basically you're, you're both doomed. You're doomed together. And it's just not going to work out happily. But what happens if you just use the time you have left together for whatever it's worth? So. I dig it. Do you want to read anything from Teenager or no? Um, yeah, I can. Let me let me just go. Uh, let me go get the book real quick. Be right back. All right, I'm back. You still there? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Alright, so I don't know, I'll read, I'll read a little bit of, um, I don't know. so it's the, for the first thing in the book chronologically, but it doesn't happen until chapter 14. I think it's the first thing chronologically. 14. They kept pulling him out of school just to send him to another. Link wrong, he'd get a new foster family. Never did get a shot at making any real friends, always the new kid. Always... Buried in some paperback, Shakespeare, or Loose Lamore, Oaths of Love Revenge, Riding Off into the Sunset, Sagebrush, and Tumbleweeds. He admired Don Quixote, who'd gone nuts and bravely changed careers from Hidalgo to Knight Errant, then set off to save the world. Cody renamed his moped Rashante in tribute. He looked up from his novel. The geography teacher was calling his name. I don't know, he said. Did you hear the question? No, but I got one for you. Where do cowboys live? Cowboys. The teacher drew a giant question mark on the board. Everyone was laughing, but from their faces, it didn't seem they knew why. He flipped through a comic book at the drugstore, and it was the same tired trope. Some poor girl was being held against her will by a bloodline of holier-than-thou assholes. Luckily, some guy stormed in with a rose in his teeth, sword in his hand, and slaughtered everybody who stood in the way of that cartoon affection. How'd the comic end? He didn't know. The clerk came around the corner hollering, and Cody didn't have the three dollars for the thing, so he put it back on the rack without seeing the final page and rode Rochante steeply uphill. But Cody had seen in that comic book that the protagonist had used a magic sword to butcher all his enemies, keeping him from his sweetheart. That's even worse when you think about it, magic or not. Because when you have to slay all those people with a sword, you have to get real close to them and feel the heat from their bodies and you have to look them in the eye. Of course, this was real life and he wondered where a guy like him could get a magic sword. (coughs) Sweethearts were not a thing to worry much about anyway. He was a virgin and he wasn't sweet on anybody. He looked at his bird chest in in the bedroom mirror He supposed first came honor, and through honor arrived love. Nobody liked him, he hypothesized, because he lacked a rigid set of personal standards. He would gain honor, honor, and through that he could gain a magic sword. Everybody would have wanted to love him then, but how to gain honor? The answer wasn't in any of his school books. 
He burned his books and thought his idle boyhood days were over. A man ought to get to work, ought to be a bit vicious with himself and those who stood in his way. Then came the day he was ripped from the cherry tree by Dale. Surgery and puberty followed. He could no longer concentrate on any kind of fictional story and he pretend. He turned solely to the physical and gained a rightful obsession with his own body, tending to it and trying to strengthen himself. Biology was his favorite subject then. Everything was so precariously balanced. He combed his hair, did 500 push-ups, yelled military cadences as he jogged the track while the rest of the class walked. Sweethearts repelled even farther. He wanted to know everything about his guts and the machine that got the guts around. One problem he had was that his brain had never fully healed from the fall. The other problem was that God or something like God had begun to whisper to him. If he knew where Dale was, he could have gone there and gotten revenge. The teacher was at the blackboard again, growing a second head. Slime bubbled down the hallway. The school nurse could not help him. He didn't want to dissect the frog. The teacher said Cody could have it worse. When the teacher was Cody's age, he'd had to slice apart a cat. Some guy in the teacher's class had thrown the severed tail of the cat down a cheerleader's blouse, and she'd screamed and ripped the blouse off, and the bra went up, and they'd all seen everything. The kid next to Cody asked the teacher, Did you throw the cat's tail down her shirt? The teacher just smiled. Cody looked down at the frog, and he saw a sleeping monk. He set the scalpel to the side. His classmates hardly knew his name. Out of the corner of his eyes, sometimes they would begin to levitate. The Marines had just rejected him. Cody thought he had better go and talk to a priest immediately. He got up from his desk and ditched class right in the middle of the lab. The instructor watched as he climbed out the window and didn't say a word. The class stood from their desks and watched him walk across the parking lot and then into the field. All right. If Cody heads towards X and X is the voice of God and Cody travels at such and such speed over uneven ground called Y and Cody doesn't necessarily believe in God and knows he has been feeling strange today and wants to go to church for the first time in his life. When will he arrive? Cody crossed the railroad tracks, saw the dusty road that led down to the trailer park. He kept going on a diagonal across drainage ditches and into the scrub pine beyond. He went looking for blueberries on the other side of town, knowing a shortcut, keeping his eyes mostly on his shoes because the world looked so strange. He remembered the plastic bag in his pocket and sat down in sugar sand and took his medicine. He felt himself drifting into sleep. He opened his eyes and was a mile farther down the path and could see the steeple poking out of the roof of golden-leaved elms. A bell called him to worship. He followed. Committed to the gag, he opened the church doors and no one was inside. Dust barrel rolled the air, empty pulpit, organ bench askew. He sat down in a giant pew and waited. No miracles occurred, but no damnation either. Church looked like it did in the movies. He scanned the set. He felt like he was waiting for the director to say action, then it all began. Cody considered going back to his own classroom. An old man in vestments walked out from some inner sanctum smoking a cigar. Here to confess? I've never done anything bad in my entire life. 
Congratulations. The priest, the priest stepped closer. Do you go to school here? Not this school. I go to Central. Or did. I think I just dropped out. Good for you. Terrible school. I think I might kill myself or become a priest. What are some other options? I can't say I have many. Cody eyed the priest. He was old enough to be Cody's grandfather. He wondered what the priest had been like when he was his age. The priest must have had a moment of crisis himself. Perhaps the crisis had led him to this very church. This could be me one day, Cody thought, or this could be my wise grandfather right now. How could I know? The priest said, don't dismay. It's a waste of your spirit. Speak your pain. Well, they told me I couldn't join the armed forces. Any, all. The priest shrugged and puffed a cigar. I don't believe in violence. Oh, it's real. I've always been a pacifist. What does that mean? Turn the other cheek. Well, they, they have those battlefield chaplains. Not me. I've worked for peace my whole life, though I have been at war. Which one? A private one. I fight it every day, every night, against Lucifer. I don't believe in him. Oh, he's real. Does God ever talk to you? The priest checked his watch. Cody leaned forward. Say, say, how did the prophets know they were prophets? You're not a prophet. That settles that, thank you. Cody heard voices and looked out the barred window and saw kids walking out of St. Agnes down the sidewalk in Catholic uniforms. They don't look any holier than me. They aren't. You're the one in a holy house. They're just out there in the wilderness. The grounds were meticulously manicured, though. Cody asked the priest if he thought Moses had brain damage, and that's why he saw the burning bush. The priest said, It's possible. But if he had brain damage, I'll promise you, he certainly got it from God, smacking him upside the head. That settles that, too. Will you stay for service? The priest snubbed the cigar out on the window ledge. I don't know what I'll do. Do what feels right, but can I give you some free advice? I have a dollar for the box. It's not free. And that's all I'll read right now. I dig it. That's really good. Do you want to plug anything before we go? No, not really. Um, I did. Um, I did just read a good book called The Last Taxi Driver. It's really good. It's by Lee Darkey. If anybody's looking for a good book to read, oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. It's like um, I don't know. It's like those that kind of like just uh, you know you're with you're with a person for a day kind of thing. He's Driving this taxi all around town, driving around, pretty much a, fic a fictional Oxford, Mississippi. Um, it's really good. And um, if anybody is looking for a good album to listen to, I listen to Barnyard by Good Morning, which is kind of like um, it's kind of like, I think the National used to be a pretty good, pretty good band, but then they got like more and more serious and slow. But like, when they were younger. When they first started, well, maybe not their first couple albums, they were kind of like whatever they were doing, like country or something. But then they kind of became like a, a rock band right around the time Interpol was doing their turn on the bright lights. The National used to be pretty good. They, they would have like some kind of like almost like little punk things going on too, and it was interesting. Um, but then they stopped doing all that. You know, they just divorced, they divorced dad music or something. 
but this um, this album Barnyard by Good Morning reminds me of that a little bit, but with uh, kind of I don't know how to say it, poppier or something. It's good. And those are the two things I'll plug. I, don't, I, I guess I was supposed to plug my own stuff, but I'll plug in those things. That's cool. I mean, I think everybody knows your stuff, but I'll definitely put them in the conclusion anyways. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right, that was Bud Smith. Definitely check out the things he recommended at the end of the show that has absolutely nothing to do with anything but are also really cool. And grab yourself a copy of Teenager while you're at it. I'm a bit biased and think you should grab a copy of Double Bird 2, but Teenager is definitely the one you should be focusing on right now. If you want to get to know Bud and his work more, check out his author site, coolgoodluck.com, or his Twitter, at Bud underscore Smith. The illustrator behind Teenager is his wife, Ray, so you should definitely check out her Instagram, at RayWatch. The spelling will be in the show notes. As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter, at PodHealing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. If you would like to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Check out past episodes and keep a lookout for the new ones to come every other Saturday. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for listening to the show.